Welcome to Footnotes, a history podcast focusing on forgotten moments, people on the wrong side of history, and those who lost. My name is Mark, and I'm joined here with my best friend, Kevin. Today's episode is one that I've wanted to record pretty much since we started this podcast. Uh, when I was thinking of ideas for various footnote events in history, one thing I was reading about at the time was, of all things, Antarctic exploration. And there's a wide variety of different Antarctic expeditions in the, the tail end of the Age of Exploration. In fact, it's the last part of the Age of Exploration that we could talk about. But the very final expedition of this age to that snow-covered continent is going to be the topic of this episode. We're going to travel with Ernest Shackleton on his endurance expedition, which left England in August of 1914. Wait, 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 wait. Do you mean to tell me that somebody named Ernest Shackleton is English? Yeah, it's about as I English as possible. I just dropped my tea in surprise. <laughs> and in a typical English fashion, he was leaving on a boat to go to a foreign land and in some sense conquer it. It's classic English. But remember the time I just said. August 1914, which to anyone that knows a little bit about history, you know is the month World War I started. So this is going to be an event, a trip if you want, that lasts throughout that war. So just have that in the back of your mind as we're telling this story. I'm trying to process in my head right now, is this great timing for him or terrible timing? Because I could see it being great like... Oh, world-ending war. Well, if anybody needs me, I'll be in the one place this doesn't directly affect. Or, conversely, is it like, oh, world-ending war. Uh, if anything goes wrong, no one's coming to help me. I'm going to let our listeners make that judgment. Ah, there we go. This is a truly epic story. And it's been one of the most fun research projects I've ever had to do. In 1912, Ernest Shackleton was already famous for exploring the Antarctic waters and coast. Once Europeans began to sail around the, the world, really, starting in you know, the 14 and 1500s, most of the planet had been charted by various European captains. But the last place to be discovered and explored in any fashion was Antarctica, mostly because it is so utterly inaccessible, and really, other than the purpose of getting there and seeing the glaciers and the icebergs and the black sand on the coast, it's kind of a pointless place. It's a habitat for fish, penguins, and birds, and there's nothing a human being really needs from it other than that basic need to be the first, the first to get to the South Pole, the first to find it, the first to cross it, to conquer some part of the world. And yet somehow that ends up being so important all the time. All the time. No value to Antarctica. Super important to be there first. Just like it's incredibly important for people to climb Mount Everest. There's no real point to it, if you want to think about it utilitarian, in a utilitarian fashion, yet people still want to do it. In the early 1900s, a variety of exped expeditions, some run by the British and some run by Norwegians, typically the two most seafaring peoples in Europe, Fair. voyaged down to Antarctica First to just explore the coast and get an idea of what the continent was like, 
and then to go to the South Pole. Now, the South Pole is located kind of smack dab toward the middle of Antarctica. If you want to think of Antarctica, at least the way I always think of that continent, is it's basically like an octopus with one arm. You can divide the continent into two groups. There's East Antarctica, which is like the, Antar the octopus's head, and it's roughly a circle. And then West Antarctica, which is a long tendril that reaches the furthest north of any place in the continent. That's so many arms to have to remove to make this octopus reference. An octopus with one arm. Yes, an octopus with one arm. You have to get rid of seven other arms to make that visual work. See, this is why Mark is the co-host, because he can do math. What episode are we on right now? I'm glad that we're not getting to a place where we're catty until this far into the show. <laughs> At one episode per month, we're probably in like July right now, which means we made it a long way before we started hating each other on the air. <laughs> Regardless, that's how I kind of think of it. It's kind of this, the, the western part of Australia, Australia, Antarctica, is this long arm that kind this of narrows Kevin's the host because he can't do geography. Thank you. Because Antarctica is this roughly circular shape with this like tendril that comes out of it that stretches far north. And practically the entire continent is south of the Antarctic Circle. You know, it's the southern version of the Arctic Circle. And we'll get into what that means. Um, these early expeditions, all they really did was go around the coast with the intention of finding places that they could land, safe, sheltered harbors, um, so they could get to that South Pole. They didn't really expect to find anything there. They just wanted to get there. And there becomes a bit of a race between the Norwegians and the British. And in some of these first expeditions, Ernest Shackleton, who was a middle-class British guy, well-educated, who had spent much of his early life, uh, from his 20s to his 30s, in the Merchant Navy. So he's a well-established sailor. He is on some of these earlier expeditions that are scouting the coast and starting to move inland. And... He actually is sent home in this first expedition because he suffers a physical collapse. Um, he's a really big man, which is kind of a problem when food is lacking. Uh, so he was unable to survive the first expedition, but he obviously got a taste for it because he's back on others. At this point in history, there's this guy with kind of a cool name, Robert Falcon Scott. Wow. Pretty cool name, right? Wow. He sounds like an author who would have killed himself. Kind of specific. Is that, is that too dark for the show? <laughs> this show gets dark. Practically every episode seems to go down well, that Yeah, way. I mean I mean in a meta sense. Yeah. But... Oh, so really good. Cool. Robert Falcon Scott. Robert Falcon oh, Scott. that's so cool. Robert Falcon Scott is this, like, perfect British explorer. Yeah. Talks in that specific accent. Has the bravado. Has the bravado. Has the good hair. Um, it's, it's ultra famous in his own time. Uh, has a strict separation between the officers and the sailors and leads as an aristocrat. You know, he is a polished guy, and yet he's going into these incredibly dangerous areas. He's the kind of guy who calls his crew, like, gentlemen yeah. and commands them on to glory. Shackleton is sort of a competitor to him at first, and they both have two expeditions go off at the same time. Shackleton doesn't really amount to anything, but in an earlier expedition, Shackleton is able to get very close to the South Pole. In the early 1900s, so 1907, Shackleton, unlike Robert Falcon Scott, starts an expedition with a hilarious name called the Nimrod Expedition. Now, remember, this is before Bugs Bunny had used Elmer Fudd as a sarcastic Nimrod. Nimrod in the Bible is a 
incredibly accomplished hunter. So this expedition was named after this like super hunter in um, biblical history, <laughs> but now it makes it sound ill-fated at the beginning. It really does. And also, super hunter sounds like something you would hear used in a badly written Godzilla movie. A little bit, yes. It's a new class of super hunter. <laughs> and the expedition actually lives up to the Bugs Bunny version of the word because it was pretty poorly set up. It's not that the men weren't, you know, well supplied and they didn't have a they had a good boat and they were well picked. But Shackleton just didn't have the right supplies to reach the South Pole. And that was his goal. And they get within a couple of degrees of latitude, that's a couple about a hundred miles or so, from the South Pole. And then they realize that if they don't turn back, they will all die. And this is actually, uh, in my opinion, a massive, massively good quality that Shackleton had, just to kind of give us a preview of who this guy is. He got close to his goal and then decided from all evidence they would die if they went any further. So they turn around, they return, you know, return to their boat, and they all survive. It's weird how few people know to do that when you start going backwards in history. Like, not even that far. Like, World War One time, like, if you told me, they said death or glory, and then went straight to no glory. I would be like, yeah, that, that, that tracks with what I know of history at the time. Definitely. That's a special characteristic. And it's based on an unending optimism. He felt that he could come back. And he could do better the second time. So as heartbreaking as it was, he had another chance. Yes, we'll get him next time. Yeah. So while he's setting up his own expedition in 1912, Robert Falcon Scott finds his way back to the South Pole, and he is actively racing um, a Norwegian named Amundsen, who are both trying to get to the South Pole in the same year. And again, the British expedition, Scott's expedition, is not very well organized. They don't have dog sleds. They're trying to use like the precursor to a snowmobile. Uh, they're trying to use Manchurian ponies, so basically little horses that are good at the cold. And the Norwegians have fully functioning dog, dog sleds. And not a surprise, when Robert Falcon Scott, I have to say his name fully the entire time. Of course. When he and his Robert crew. Robert Downey Jr. Yes, exactly. <laughs> when he and his crew reach the South Pole, there's just tracks everywhere on the South Pole. It's disappointing. And it's obvious when there's a Norwegian flag at the South Pole that the Norwegians got there first. On the return trip back, because Robert Falcon Scott had taken too many men and not enough supplies, they all die of scurvy. Including Robert Falcon Scott? Yes. That's not what you want to hear. Scott, Robert Falcon Scott. There it is. Didn't turn back. We have his diary. We, or we have information about what happened to his men, and they knew that they didn't have enough food. But they tried anyway, and they died. What was I just saying? Feels, feels like it was on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> So Shackleton is famous. He had movies made of his expeditions. They have hundreds, thousands of well-made photographs of Antarctica, of the boats, of the men. He went on a large speaking tour. He is a popular man, and he is comfortable. He has done a pretty good job of paying down his debts from his previous trips. But he's, he's a restless guy, and he's going to go back to Antarctica. And since the South Pole had already been accomplished, conquered, whatever you want to say. Freaking Norwegians. By the Norwegians. He comes up with a different plan. What he wants to do 
is cross the continent. This 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 whole idea, it's like it's like the that that joke of the Simpsons did it, but on like a macro like all of humanity scale where you're like I'm going to go to the South Pole. And yeah, the Norwegians did it. I'm going to cross the entire continent. Did the Norwegians do that? No, no they didn't. That's what I'm going to do. It it's it, it has to be that kind of sense. Like, well, I got to go do something. I can't just sit in England. It's boring here. This is true. There's there's an argument to be made that like if the human spirit to do stupid things like cross the Antarctic like that, we would not be sitting here with computers and recording equipment right now. Exactly. Like humanity needs to be obsessive about like going, hey, what hasn't somebody else done yet? How can I feel special today? And in fairness to these guys, it's not just going there to cross the continent. And that's not the sole purpose of it. So the basic idea here is that they want to go so they can get movies of this of the continent they want to take pictures they want to have most of their crew or a large portion of their crew be scientists so this is a scientific expedition at this point they're well established enough to get to antarctica that they're going to explore it but also research it so shackleton begins to put together this crew um he's aiming for about two dozen a little more than two dozen and kind of split the crew into three groups there's the officers which is probably the smallest group, and then the sailors, so the people are actually going to run the boat. But then a sizable portion are just a variety of scientists. There's a biologist, there's a meteorologist, a magnetologist, there's um, just name an ologist, and it's there, and they're there. Pathologist. There's actually two doctors. Ah. So both surgeons. They're there to see how this is. <laughs> Stop naming ologists. So they're there to study not just a doxologist i'm just going to keep talking <laughs> so they're there to see the effects on the men they're there to see the plants and animals that are living under or around these ice shelves in these super cold waters they don't know what's down there at this point in history they don't know very much about it so they're going to go down there to see that and then also become famous as they cross the continent so the way the expedition is set up is that there's going to be two expeditions. Mm -hmm. Shackleton is going to be on the boat, the Endurance. And so the expedition is called the Endurance Expedition from here on out. And the Endurance is this beautiful boat that's made in Norway. In Norway and it's made from super special kinds of wood that are very resilient to cold, for obvious reasons. But also they're able to handle the pressure and impact of ice that might hit the, the ship. Seems like something that could be useful. The the wood is ultra hard, like almost like manzanita wood, where it does it can bend, but it's strong. It's it's wood that, that the sailors didn't even recognize. It was so strong, and that's the one boat. And that one's going to be with Shackleton and his main crew, and they're going to find a spot in the what's called the Weddell Sea. That's in between the Antarctic Peninsula, that northern little octopus arm, and the eastern coast. And so they want to go as far south onto that little semicircle as possible. Get on land. The sailors are going to return back to a port to get more supplies. And the officers and the scientists are going to winter over. Scientists are going to go split around and go explore and collect specimens and things like that. And Shackleton and a small group of men are going to cross the continent. Where on the other side of the continent, on the Australian side, the Weddell Sea is south of South America, across Antarctica on the Australian side, spheres work that way on the australian side there is a second complete crew who by the way go through their own ordeal they're the pickup crew they're the pickup crew they're also setting like cargo dumps 
So they're going to where Shackleton expects to cross and dropping supply depots in a long chain. So they're almost like kind of like half crossing and just like mm-hmm. dropping stuff on the way back. And then reversing on their way back, uh, having to deal with all sorts of other problems themselves, led by a Scottish guy named um, Aeneas McIntosh, who was famous in his own right. God, how come everyone in this story has like the best, but also most like stereotypical names? Oh, definitely. So that's the plan. And Shackleton gets a ton of interest when he spreads a message saying, hey, I want sailors to come. A lot of the guys that pick up on that message had already done Antarctic tours. They had been on these previous expeditions. Some of them even survived those expeditions where many of the people had died <laughs> and they were returning. In fact, like... I love, I love, really quick, I love that the severity of this trip, given that description, sailors who had even survived an Antarctic trip before. It's like, oh my gosh. A beautiful example of this is one of the best sailors they had was a man named Crean. Crean had been on the Robert Falcon Scott expedition where Scott had died. And he had been told to stay with the boat when Robert Falcon Scott's chosen group of men, four men, had decided to go to the pole. Crean had been left behind. And he was actually heartbroken by it because he almost felt it was a slight. Mm-hmm. He wasn't allowed to go on the final part. Well, not going kept him alive. So he comes right back. So to give you an idea of some of the people, the crew, I'm only going to mention a couple. I'm not going to go through all 26. But there's sailors like Crean. There was a Royal Marine, a guy named Thomas Ordlees, who uh, was the only guy who actually knew how to ski. And they're going to have to cross-country ski across Antarctica to a certain point. He's the guy in charge of all the stores. And he gives them some like governmental legitimacy because the government actually funded some of this. There is a photographer, a very famous Australian photographer named Frank Hurley, who is just perfect at his job. And he is this intelligent, brave, polished guy. Many of the scientists are like Hurley, these known scientists that are these just iron and nails, strong guys that are also highly educated and just willing to go on this adventure to experience this this other world down at the southern part of the continent, you know, the planet. There's a very famous carpenter who becomes famous later for what he does on this named Mick Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> named McNish, who just could make anything out of anything. It's these just jack of all trades. I'm assuming mostly wood. Mostly wood. Yeah, but trust me, he can make anything out of wood. The captain of the boat not the guy who's in charge of the boat, the actual steerer of the boat, mm-hmm. is a man named Frank Worsley. Hard, hard name to say. It's like Worcestershire sauce. Worsley. Something yeah, like yeah. that. Who could be bothered? And he is already famous for just being one of the best captains in the world. And then there's Frank Wilde, who is Shackleton's second in command with a great name It's a good well. second in command name right there. And he had apparently become a complete loyal follower to Shackleton when during Shackleton's failed Nimrod expedition, who, where Wilde was, Wilde was there with him at the part where they failed, while they were freezing to death in Antarctica and trying to survive in these tiny tents on their way back to their boat, Shackleton had refused his own meals a couple of times and given his food to Wilde. And in the circumstances, that was like Shackleton sacrificing his own life for Wilde. Wilde. So Wilde is his ardent follower. Yeah, for good reason. Exactly. Between the willingness to turn back as well as the uh, the fact that, yeah, he's making self-sacrifice as the quote-unquote most important person on the mm-hmm. on the campaign, like, 
that's a good person to follow back down because you're going, I'm not going to die before he dies. Exactly. Which is nice because a lot of a lot of leaders will be like, as long as I'm the la- last man left standing, I'm good to go. Throughout this story, we get to look at Ernest Shackleton and his leadership abilities and the way he controls very indirectly in many cases his crew. And that is a just interesting psychological part of this story. So let's actually get to the expedition because we we know how it was set up. We know their goal. For a variety of reasons, most of the crew gets to Argentina, Buenos Buenos Aires, before Shackleton does because he's trying to fully fund the expedition and get the last set of supplies and they have to get uh, Canadian dog sled dogs. So they they get a bunch of giant dogs and they got to try to get someone who can manage the dogs properly and that guy actually drops out of the last minute. So Shackleton's late and his entire crew gets to Argentina and then they actually travel from Argentina to this forlorn island in the middle of the southern ocean called South Georgia Island. And Shackleton and kind of his officer crew is up in Great Britain in like July of 1914, while most of his crew is making its way to what is called Gritviken, which is a Norwegian har- whaling harbor in South Georgia Island. So that's the southernmost point of occupied land on the planet at this point in history, is this tiny island in the middle of the horrifyingly cold, windy, storm-swept Southern Ocean. In August 1914, Shackleton is finally ready to leave with his crew. As his boat is leaving England, they receive notice that England had declared war on Germany. And World War I was beginning. So they're not in England at this time. They're down at the very, very, like, southernmost part of society. Or Shackleton's still up north. Shackleton is still in England. He's still in it. Parts of his crew are down south. They're they're gathering at this point. It takes a while to gather at this time in history when they're all this disparate as well. Oh, it's still hard to get people in one place at the same time. That's very true. I feel like it's tougher if you have to go across half the world and also there's no cell phones. They have telegraphs, which are actually pretty efficient at that. But it's like an early find my friends, right? Jeez. Regardless, Shackleton immediately says, I have all my crew for the war effort. You know, there was a lot of patriotic enthusiasm at the beginning of that war. And of all people, Winston Churchill, who was Admiral of the Navy, or the the guy in charge of the Navy, I forgot the exact title, says, no, your expedition is more important. We probably don't need you. Proceed. So before the war really gets started, Shackleton's boat scoots its way down to the Southern Hemisphere before really there's any blockading and all that stuff yeah probably probably a good call shackleton meets up with his crew in south georgia island at that gritviken harbor and the norwegians there you know that last outpost of civilization and gritviken harbor is a deeply unpleasant place um it's just covered in blood and there's fat and oil floating on the surface because this is a whaling station and this is where they actually process the whales as well. So it's it's a horrifying place. Yet at the same time, where the humans live, they have made it pretty comfortable. There are full-on houses. People have beds. There's children there. Um, people have flower gardens. And those South Georgia Island, no one would expect it to be a paradise. It does stay pretty warm there in the grand scheme of things. It's not frozen over all year. It's really about as far south as people can comfortably live. The Norwegians warn Shackleton, didn't know why he's there, that the sea ice this year, 1914, is 
exceptionally far north for the time of year because they're there at the end of spring, beginning of summer in the Southern Hemisphere. They're there, you know, September, October, which is the equivalent to um, kind of March, April, May. Okay, so you got to add Some six months. The warmth is causing stuff to break off and float away. Actually, it's the opposite. It's really? There's so much ice that it has pushed and pushed and per- pushed further north. Uh. So there's simply more ice. While the crew and Shackleton are sitting in Grit- Gritviken Harbor on South Georgia Island, the Norwegians warn them that the ice this summer is much further north than it has been in recent memory. So when they get, when the crew gets to South Georgia Island, there is a bit of a delay. It took a long time for them all to get there and gather up. And they're there in October and November in 1914, which for the Southern Hemisphere is the spring and beginning of summer. The ice at this point usually starts to break apart, open up, and allow for access to Antarctica proper. To recap a little bit, the crew of the Endurance, led by Ernest Shackleton, is moored on South Georgia Island, where there is the furthest point of inhabited land on the planet, at least in 1914, where there's a Norwegian whaling station. They had been delayed on arriving here, specifically Ernest Shackleton, due to a variety of things such as World War I and just the the difficulty of bringing together such a complex mission. Their goal is to travel south, to reach the landmass of Antarctica, and cross the entire continent. Now they're warned as they sit on this inhospitable chunk of rock and ice that is at least somewhat temperate. They're warned by the Norwegians that the sea ice this year is extra thick, and extra far north. And mind you, they are on South Georgia Island at the beginning of summer, right as spring is turning to summer. They're there in November and December, which in the Southern Hemisphere is the end of spring, the beginning of summer. And while they're down there, they know that if this ice is too thick, they won't be able to get to Antarctica. But they have spent the last year or two building up this mission, this plan, and they have to go. While they're on South Georgia Island, the photographer, Frank Hurley, manages to get some pictures of the island. And that's the one thing we're going to see throughout this story and that you can see in the main resource, the main book that I used um, as my secondary source to read about this, is there is beautiful photography of this entire voyage. The photographer, again, was an Australian guy named Frank Hurley, and he had some of the most fine-tuned equipment that a photographer could have in the early 20th century. And he's just got camera after camera, and they would climb up to the top of whatever vantage point they could get to get these beautiful landscape pictures. So if you want to pick up the book um, by Carolyn Alexander called uh, The Endurance, Shackleton's Legendary Antarctic Expedition, not only will you get to see this story, but you'll get to see just picture after picture after picture in like high-quality Probably in black and white, though it might, they're all in black and white, but even if they weren't, it still it would look be black, black and white. Because yeah, everything's just black, black and white. And white. Yeah. The ice is white. The people are probably wearing black black uh, jackets. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this book is called Endurance Did It for the Gram. <laughs> 
Oh, I barely <laughs> understand that reference. And we're the same age. That's sad. This is true. Just the, that is the best book for this. It's really re- reader friendly. And if, if you like the podcast and you like history, this is a well-told story, but it's done in a way that's meant for like wide audiences. Um, and I use that book as well as using um, Shackleton's book himself. Um, he wrote an account of this story about a year afterward. And so those are the two main things I used for this. Um, the crew of the Endurance is excited. They, there's no other way to say it. They all know their mission. They all know their jobs. Some of them, the sailors, are expected to sail down to Antarctica then sail back to get more supplies. Most of the scientists are going to hang out around the coastline and do scientific research. And then the bulk of the officers, led by Shackleton and a couple of the more hardy actual explorers that are there, are going to cross the continent and meet up with the Australian side crew. Remember, we're on the South American side of um, Antarctica. They can meet up with the Australian side crew, and they're going to then uh, return via Australia. So that's kind of the idea. Cross Antarctica. The South Pole has already been conquered, so this is the next best thing. Just that conquering of nature that humankind seems to have to do. Now, warned about the sea ice, they try to leave as soon as they can, and they manage to actually get into their boat and toward Antarctica which is about 700 miles away from South Georgia Island. At least any point of Antarctica is around that far, and they're probably going to have to go a little bit farther. And within 100 miles of South Georgia Island, they encounter the sea ice. That's hundreds of miles earlier than they expected. So they steam really quick. Remember, their their boat, the Endurance, is made from this ultra-hard wood that's just perfect for traveling through cold oceans. Um, It has both a coal engines like a steam engine as well as masts and sails so it can kind of do both which makes it extra perfect for this because if they run out of coal well they all know how to run a boat so they are all really good sailors they, they can handle it either way it's equipped with three lifeboats it's got multiple multi-level decks it's actually pretty big it's a good boat and it shows it really quick the endurance is able to encounter the ice and just start to cut through it it's not an icebreaker ship, but at first the ice is pretty manageable, and we're talking maybe a couple feet thick, and it just kind of shifts around on the ocean. And in between these large, like football field-sized chunks of relatively thin ice are what are called leads. Basically the gaps between these big chunks of ice, which are open water. And as the currents and the winds blow the ice and the ice kind of shifts back and forth, it constantly opens up these big channels. Sometimes they're narrow, but most of the time they're fairly big at this point. And the boat can kind of cut through those. But as they go further south, they start to encounter ice that is much thicker and there are much fewer leads. And they actually start to use the boat as a ram. They have to break the ice and produce leads. And so they will back up the boat and then charge at full steam and slam into the ice. And when that happens, the boat actually rises up onto the ice and smashes down and creates a V-shaped wedge that then, if they hit it enough times, shatters these ice flows, F-L-O-E, and it breaks them apart, and then they can motor their way through. Okay, one, that's so metal, especially for a boat that's not metal. Uh, Two, uh, they should have done this with the Titanic. (laughs) <laughs> Tragedy's hilarious. Yes. <laughs> Remember, the Titanic had only sunk two years previous to this event. I was gonna ask. I don't. I, I don't know the uh, 1912. Yeah, I don't know the. I don't know the timing between the two. That's actually really interesting. That yeah, we're fresh on the sinking of the Titanic, and now we're 
We're going like, you know what's a good idea? Ramming boats into ice. This it's boat being all the rage. This boat being designed to do that can handle it a lot better. But what will sometimes happen to the boat is they crash into the ice and the ice pulls away. But then sometimes just due to currents and wind and the fact that the ice is floating, the ice will close onto the ship. And the ship will get raised up above the water and they'll be stuck there temporarily. And the guys all have to jump out into the onto the ice or take long sticks from the boat and chisel the boat out of the ice just to keep going south. So they continue this. <laughs> just, so, just so they can go somewhere where this will happen more frequently. And with thicker, worse, colder ice. You can see where this is going. So, so the boat is called Endurance, you say? <laughs> yes, which is the most <laughs> apt name for a boat for what its mission is possible. Mm -hmm. As they continue south, they are trying to get to... Um, the eastern side of what's called the Weddell Sea. I've already described the Weddell Sea a little bit. It's that it's a semicircle where the Antarctic landmass forms the bottom half of the semicircle. And the northern part of the semicircle is mostly empty ocean with a bunch of volcanic islands dotted around it, South Georgia being at the northeast corner of what we're talking about. So they go due south, and they hit the eastern side of this ocean basin. And the current there all flows... Um, clockwise. So the current's basically going toward the west in kind of a southwesterly spinning position. So that's kind of the direction a boat has to go. The main rule about seafaring is you go where the ocean and wind takes you as much as possible because you go much, much faster. And With a lot less effort. A lot less effort. Yeah. Save your coal. Yeah, and they don't have infinite coal. They got a lot of coal, but they don't have infinite coal. So the first thing they do is they get to the land mass. And because of the way the currents work, there's basically an open channel of water up up against the side of the uh, the continent. Because all the, the ice is being pushed away from the continent and against the other side of the continent, a couple hundred miles away to the west. And... That part of the continent is that octopus arm that we were making fun of each other about. That's called the Antarctic or Palmer Peninsula. So that's where all the ice is being pushed toward the west. So there's that open chunk of water. And so they kind of scoot along the, the continent. And they you know, identify a couple of bays and glaciers that no one ever seen before. They name things after various sponsors of their trip. Things are going pretty well because they have this channel to travel through. It's, and like, they, it's like early NASCAR. No, a little got, bit, yeah. We, we're just naming stuff after our sponsors. We're just slapping logos on things. I never thought of it that way, but it's the exact it's, same idea. It's basically how we've done things forever. It's like, hey, if you paid for us to do this, we'll uh, we'll name some stuff after you. Um, they actually name all three of their lifeboats, and these names are going to come up later after the three main sponsors of their uh, of their voyage. And so th this is not an uncommon thing. This is kind of the beginning of this sponsorship modernity of. Uh, expeditions yeah or sport this desperate clinging to life brought to you by nestle well someone named nestle existed at this point probably yeah they continue along the southern continent and eventually they have to start to cut into the ice they there's a variety of blizzards and storms and things that kind of stops them and pushes back um the storms that come from the north are just for the rest of the story, remember this fact, okay? The storms that come from the north are wet and snowy and miserable. When there's a gale, as they call it, that comes from the south, it's usually excessively cold but dry. Better. That's actually better. Powdery snow, less sleety. Yeah. 
So when it's coming from the north, northwest, northeast, doesn't really matter. The men are usually much more uncomfortable, and it impacts their voyage a lot. When the storms come in from the south, as we'll see, uh, it usually has a bright, sunny day afterwards. That's not uncommon. But, you know, people that live in the Midwest know that you know when it's really cold, it tends to be really sunny. Same thing down Antarctica. But the problem is now that there's ice everywhere. They can't hug the coast anymore. As they start to curve around the coast, the current situation's not benefiting them anymore. And when they start to try to push south, they find just a wall of ice. And Shackleton actually writes about it in his book. As they try to go further south, he says, We had been steaming and dodging about over an area of 20 square miles for 50 hours, trying to find an opening to the south, southeast, or southwest. But all the leads ran north, northeast, or northwest. It was as though the spirits of the Antarctic were pointing us to the backward track, the track we were determined not to follow. I mean, that's ultimate foreshadowing. The, the weather and con- this, the basic climatic conditions are so against them right now that they don't really have anywhere that they can go in the direction of their mission. And they just basically spin around in circles, slamming into the ice, trying to produce a lead. Eventually, a lead opens up, and it kind of pushes <laughs> I don't know if Nestle even exists at this point. Straight into the center of the pack ice, hoping there are more leads that allow them to reach the coast And of hoping that it doesn't just close up behind them and leave them stranded in the dead center of a giant field of ice. Exactly. But at, remember, they don't have a choice. If they're right. going to get to the con- continent, they, they have to continue in that direction, south, southwest. Jeez. West, south, southwest. Yeah, the gravity of even just this portion of the mission is really starting to like really like kind of like resonate with me of this is all just to get to the continent they want to cross. And if they are reckless in the direction that they take to get to the continent, their boat might not be able to get back out to sea. And if your boat can't get back out to sea, uh, I don't think Uber picks up down here. No, I don't think so. That's not great. Maybe Lyft. Uh, I don't have a joke for it. Damn it. (laughs) They scoot in and out. Again, I use the word scoot, which is probably not the right term, but they, they, they steam is the right term. No, nah, let's it, go with scooting. I right, like they, scooting. They're scooting. They, they steam in and out of the flow a couple of times, and they, they, they experience up against the coast of Antarctica for one last time a massive stranded iceberg, and they realize that not only are they now kind of surrounded in ice near the coast, but there's, they're probably really close to dry land, and that's another thing they had to be wary of when they're on this continental shelf like that is there's random shoals of rocks that they might ram into because they can't see them because there's ice in the way mm-hmm. and so the fact that there's a stranded iceberg way out away from the continental you know face that they can see they're like they're, that those are rocks and there's an iceberg that's not moving with the current which means that's on land they have to cut back into the ice as well there's little things like that where if you don't pay attention to the fact that that one iceberg is not moving you're going to hit land and you might get stranded. And then if your boat gets stranded here and you're not on the ocean, you're, they're going to die. They yeah. can't survive that. They have plenty of food, but if you can't get out of Antarctica, right. that's not where humans live. So as I think we kind of foreshadowed with both the quote and Mark, what Mark literally just said about going into the ice and getting stuck, they again have to go into the ice flows. They find a lead. They enter them. And these look like what are called old flows. When ice forms... It usually forms during the winter, freezes and builds up and builds up and builds up, gets snowed on, it kind of gets thicker as the winter progresses, as every you know, particle of water that is exposed to the atmosphere freezes in various layers. Well, most of the time the ice will melt 
and reform. And you get these relatively loose, not too rammed together ice flows. But sometimes that ice gets stuck and it doesn't ever get far enough north to melt. And you get these much more stable flows. Basically, you get thicker, more, I guess the word would be like accreted. It's more stuck together ice. And the flow they enter looks different and it looks older. And when that flow closes around them, they get locked in place. It's really weird. And both the books that I'm using for this, they just kind of say, and then the ice closes around the boat and they're stuck. They try to chisel their way out. They can't. The boat's up above the water to a certain extent. It's still underwater, but the ice is closed around it because the boat's pretty deep. They are for about a month or so. This is in January, so the equivalent of July, that this locks up. So remember, this is the hottest month of the year in this location, and it's still this icy. It's an extra cold time. They look around for about a month trying to see if there's any leads that are open up hoping that the ice flow will break away with enough force that the boat will go back into the water. A few times, within 20, 30 yards of the ship, there's fully open water. And they try to chisel the ship out. They try to put it at full steam. They do everything they can to get the boat back in the water. But after about a month of trying... A month of trying? A month of trying. Oh, my... By the later end of February... They even give up on the ship's routine. A month. A month of just sitting in one place every day, spending basically all day every day trying to go, how do we unstick this boat? And there's a certain spookiness to this time period too because this is during the midnight sun. They're below the Antarctic Circle. The sun is not setting during any of this. So there's this perpetual sunshine, and it's not like bright sunshine because the sun angle in the Antarctic or the Arctic is very low. That's why it's so cold there. The sun's energy is just simply spread out. It's so just it's continuous like, twilight. It's continuous twilight. And the sun doesn't set, just literally spins in a like an S-shape curve around in a circle. That has got to be so jarring. That's actually what the Antarctic Circle is. It's the furthest northern point where the sun won't set for at least one day. And as you go further toward the South Pole, that time span where the sun doesn't set, it just wiggles in the sky in this big old circle, that gets longer and longer. And for where they are, they're about 70 degrees south, um, which is not too far south of the Antarctic Circle. This lasts for a couple months. It's like two months. And remember, that means in the winter, the sun doesn't rise. What? At around noon, it glows on the horizon. And they're stuck here. And by February, they just give up. What are they going to do? They can't implore the ice to separate. They've been hacking at it with shovels and axes and stakes for the last month. It's over. And that's the irony here, is the original mission for all that planning, for all that hope, for all of that funding, it's done. They never do it. It stays in their mind a little bit, but for all intents and purposes, now it's just... We need to get out of here. And the entire mission slowly begins to change from here on out. Stuck on the ice, they try their radio. So radios, I didn't really know this, but they did have fully functioning radios in 1914. I, I wasn't even going to ask because I kind of assumed that they didn't. They weren't as efficient. Um, but they were used, I know, in World War One at, at the very beginning of the war, but... Uh, they weren't to the same extent that they were successful in like World War II. Um, 
The problem is they have this big mast, and it's this big you know, radio tower that comes off of their uh, their ship, and they're trying to communicate with Buenos Aires, which is like 2,000 miles away. Yeah, what's the reach on these things? And the reach is not 2,000 miles. Oh, yeah, because I can't get Wi-Fi, like, on my patio. Yeah. <laughs> or they try to reach um, the largest city in the southern, like, south, south, south southern hemisphere, which is Punta, um, Puntas Arenas, which is, like, Sandy Point. Is what what did you just call me? <laughs> I know. It's, it sounds <laughs> bad. Puntas Arenas. And that's in uh, southern Chile. Um, okay. And they can't reach that either. They know they're pretty much isolated, and it dawns on the men that not only are they trapped in the ice, no one knows where they are. They're isolated. They might as well be on a different planet. Isolated? They might as well be on a different planet. (laughs) And to me... Okay, don't acknowledge the joke, then. Fine. (laughs) I acknowledged it with silence. (laughs) That's probably the right call. And to me, it's... This is like the one thing that is the ultimate argument against, you know, exploring other planets is just going to this portion of our own planet. They might as well be on Mars. It's going to take months for someone to go find them. They, it takes a very long time for any messages to get back. They're even able to send them on a boat. They're in an area where walking outside kills you because you freeze to death. The only benefit that Earth has at this place on Earth over Mars is you can breathe it. You can breathe it outside. So life in this otherworldly location is actually surprisingly comfortable for these guys. Because remember, though they're down here in Antarctica, they expected to be here. So they have a full supply of rations. They have like 80 dogs, so they have companionship. The carpenter, um, again, a guy named McNish, he has a cat who he has named Mrs. Chippy because he's called Chippy McNish because he's the carpenter and Chippy is the shortened term for carpenter. And so he has Mrs. Chippy, so he has his own pet. Mrs. Chippy is, of course, a boy cat, which they couldn't tell apparently at the beginning. Regardless, though, they have, you know, these dogs that they're taking care of. They have plenty of food. They are surrounded by a bunch of supportive humans who are all in the exact same boat together. Literally. Literally. And that's all a human being needs to feel, you know, emotional comfort. And as long as a human being is not in a distressed state of mind and they have all the supplies they need and they're not freezing because in the boat it's warm and they do some things to benefit that and help that along, these guys are stressed to an extent, but as we're going to describe, their lives are actually pretty good during this time period. But there's that foreshadowing there, that looming, well, what happens in the future? What do we do to get out of this? Yeah. So they have to wait. They have to wait for the for their ice flow to drift. Or they have to wait for summer to melt the ice. One well, of the two. So they're just kind of hoping that, like, the piece of ice that they happen to be stuck on happens to just kind of flow to a place where maybe they can get out. Basically, yeah. So remember the way... That's not great. It's not great. And remember the way the current works is it's going to move along the coast of Antarctica, so toward the west, and then once it hits the west, it starts to flow north. So the idea here is over the course of many months, the flow should start to shift to the west and then push back north. And if they get lucky... 
it'll time so as they're moving up toward the north, it's also when the next summer is coming around. They're going to have to stay on the ice all winter. In fact, it's safer because ice is stable in the winter. And if they get lucky enough and their flow manages to leave the super cold part of Antarctica that never melts, they can get out of the ice. Aren't they currently in the summer? They're currently in the summer. That's a long time. It is a long time. I mean, they're in the beginning of summer. I hope the carpenter goes crazy first because it'll solidify some theories I have about cat people versus dog people. (laughs) Just wait. (laughs) So because their ice is so stable, one of the first things they do is uh, they get the dogs off of the boat. And the dogs have a variety of kennels that are on the boat, and they want to start to use the surface of the, 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 the deck of the boat to do a variety of other things, and they want to give the dogs who are you know, covered in this super thick fur. These are half-wolf breeds. These are, you know, Alaskan Malamutes and Huskies, like that, from Canada. French Bulldogs, the usual. Yeah, French Bulldogs, a few Chihuahuas, a Dachshund or two. And these are should massive have, dogs. Should have brought a Corgi. Should have brought a Corgi. A Corgi actually be able to handle this yeah. better than a you know, Dachshund, for example. Yeah. But they get these dogs, these massive dogs, and they're all living in kennels together, and they put them in... Uh, these like little ice houses that they call dogloos. No. In the in Jackalton's book, they call them dogloos. Oh, that's amazing. And they're basically a classic igloo. They take a little bit of um, material to form a, and some old wood and stuff. They form a little skeleton. They cover that in ice, and it makes a nicely insulated um, dogloo. Dog and there's a little opening. The dogs hang out in there. And since the dogs can pretty much just hang out in the cold because they're, they're wearing such thick fur. Right. Um, even when blizzards come by and the dogs get absolutely buried by snow, they say the dogs just simply will poke out their paw to make a breathing hole and then just are completely comfortable. So these dogloos are actually a wonderful place for these dogs to hang out. Um, the men basically start to adopt different groups of dogs, and uh, they begin to do dog sled races. I mean, that's what the dogs were there for, because they wanted right. to use the dogs to move them across the continent when, in the initial plan. And these dogs need to get their energy out. They need to be tested because even though I've just said we're they're done on this trip, they don't know this yet. So they're still trying to work out the dogs because they might, one, need the dogs to get them across the ice eventually if they have to abandon the ship. Or if the ice breaks up and they're able to, because it's still summer, it might break up, and they're able to get to the continent and they can keep the mission going, right? So they'll work out these dogs. And over the course of the time that they're stuck on the ice, there's constant dog sled racing where these guys will take their you know, they're precious six, eight, ten dogs, and they'll play around with how much weight is on these different sleds, or sledges, it's called both, and they'll race them back and forth to the various icebergs that are stuck in the ice with them and form the natural landmarks. So that's how they kind of orient themselves is, all right, we're going to take us, we're going to go to that iceberg over there, and they've named the iceberg. You know, the rampant berg, I think, is one of the names they give it. And so they know that that's about 500 yards, so they're going to do a 500-yard round-trip race. And sometimes, like Shackleton being the captain, he's really comfortable with his men. He will be the weight on one of the sleds. And so they'll actually put guys on the sleds. They'll put random supplies on the sleds and do these big races. They'll go onto the ice and um, basically smooth out a flattened portion of ice and put a couple of crates down and play soccer out on the ice. And they'll play these six-on-six games of soccer. It's negative 20 degrees outside, but kicking the soccer ball around is actually a pretty fun way to experience the frozen boringness. And keep your body temperature up a little bit. And keep your body temperature up. The scientists continue their work. Even the poor geologist who's trapped on ice, there's no rocks on ice. 
manages to find some rocks on the ice. Yeah. Basically, he, he takes trips out to the various icebergs, and since the icebergs are freshwater, which is important later, they form on land, and they fall into the ocean. And so they're actually fresh water, and that's where they're getting all their water from, by the way. Once they run out of water, they're chipping ice off icebergs and melting Bring, it yeah. and boiling it a little bit. Um, he's going to the icebergs, and he's finding rock, rocks and stones on the icebergs. Um, they're looking at the sky constantly, figuring out from the stars where they are uh, in terms of latitude and stuff. Um, they are also taking these big dredges where they're figuring out how far down the ocean is. And for a lot of this, the ocean is like thousands of feet below them. So they know they're pretty much in open water, which to them is probably more comforting than when they drop it down and they impact mud in 200 feet. And they, they worry that the ice flow is going to put them onto land, which yeah. would be extra scary, just like we said. And they actually get some of the earliest evidence that life can survive in these ultra-cold oceans in Antarctica. Because when they're pulling up this mud and this water, it's filled with life. And that's something a lot of people didn't expect then. So the scientists are keeping themselves busy. The men. So as far as like the purposes of this mission, pretty much everybody but the explorer explorers are getting exactly what they signed up for. Yeah. That's okay. So at this point, the mission isn't like an abject failure. It's just the, the like the sport of it all is, is kind of out the window. The, pretty much. The, we're going to cross the continent to be the first people to cross the continent thing is bunk. But everybody else is like, yeah, but who cares? That was just an ego trip. Everything else is like, we came here to do science and to photograph things, and we're doing all of that stuff just fine. Yeah, to, to mention the photography, um, again, uh, Hurley, the photographer, he basically spends this entire time in the best of moods. He is just going from place to place, and the atmosphere, literally, is otherworldly down here. And he's taking picture after picture of the men playing soccer, of the dog sled races, of the boat at various angles. Um, when the weather is clear enough, he'll set up giant spotlights, and there's beautiful pictures of the endurance. It's just this gorgeous boat, well lit up, and he's got it from various angles. He climbs on top of the icebergs, because they're really tall, and he gets these big panorama shots of the ice, and you see that the ice is this otherworldly, like, almost looks like mountains of crunched ice cubes everywhere. And to kind of give you an idea of what the land is like that Hurley is you know, photographing, um, the ice is constantly shifting and groaning, but very slowly, so that the men kind of think about it, but it's a passing thought after a while. But the ice is always shifting a little bit. And one of the first things they notice is that it makes a lot of weird sounds because it's constantly being pressed up against itself and sliding away and slamming against various other parts. And those are called pressure ridges. When two pieces of ice get moved together by wind or current and that, you know it's basically what's going to win, ice flow one or ice flow two, and they just basically slam up against each other and they the ice lifts up and collapses and that happens very slowly and it's very loud and so the captain of the boat is one of the first guys to go out and voyage around onto the ice and he says quote the ice makes all sorts of quaint noises we heard tapping us from a hammer grunts groans and squeaks electric trams running birds singing kettles boiling noisily and an occasional swish as a large piece of ice released from pressure suddenly jumped or turned over. So as they're standing out on this ice, they're surrounded by all these bizarre noises that sound like things they know, but it's just the quirks of the ice as it shifts and moves and just the immense power of the ocean. 
is just controlling everything around them. That feels like it would have to start impacting your your psyche at a certain point, like to be in this very alien environment and to hear all of these like noises, like if, if not for the camaraderie of each other and the dogs and everything, you feel like this would take a very serious toll on the kind of psychological well-being of people and feel very kind of hallucinogenic of I'm in this alien environment, but I'm hearing all these familiar sounds seemingly from nowhere. I think the psychological toll is something that was very important to Shackleton when he chose his men. Yeah. So Alexander, in her, in her book, describes the way he chose the men on the trip. So certain guys, because they'd already been to Antarctica, were shoe-ins on this voyage. Um, and practically everyone had some experience with, you know, sailing in less than ideal conditions, whether Arctic or Antarctic. So a good example of how Shackleton chose his men was the last guy that was chosen for the voyage. They initially wanted to have 27, but when a couple of the, the sailors showed up from Argentina, one of their buddies had stowed away with them. And he, didn't, he was really young compared to the others, and he didn't have any experience. And when they found that he was stowed away, this is before they got to South Georgia Island, they bring him to Shackleton, who apparently uh, dresses him down, which is a fancy word for screams at him and right. threatens him and all that stuff. And then apparently they knew that he, the man's name was Blackborough. He comes up later. That Blackborough was going to be able to stay was when Shackleton asked, do you like to sing with the boys? And that's kind of an odd question to be confirmation that this guy's staying. And what it tells us is that Shackleton wanted to know, could this guy get along with others? Could he sing songs? And it didn't matter the conditions. Could he make the best out of a situation? When you're in a high-pressure environment and you cannot get away with the other, away from the people you're with, yeah, are you amenable or do you become a thorn in everyone's side? Exactly. And, and Are you a net drain on the morale of the trip, basically? And there's another man on the trip who was a net drain, and you can see how he is hated by everybody. So there was a guy named Thomas Ord Lees. He goes by Lees for the rest of all the books. And he was a royal marine. He was a like kind of more aristocratic guy that was the government's way of giving some legitimacy to this mission because the government, the British government had funded it. And he was their um, storekeeper. So he was the one in charge of all the rations. And once they get locked oh, in the no. ice, he starts to do two things that really bother people, especially bother Shackleton. He starts to hull away some food. He starts little like things like cocoa and chocolate or butter, things that are delicacies once you're put in this kind of survival situation. And secondly, he begins to vocally fret from a pretty early stage that they're going to run out of food. And he starts to make all sorts of different mathematical timetables of if they eat this many calories, how long that they can survive. And Shackleton keeps trying to get him to shut up. Yeah, for good reason. Because everyone's aware of the situation. And if you approach the situation with, we're going to get through this, it's going to work out, you can be more mentally cognizant of different dangers. You don't have that stress build that makes people do stupid things. I mean, there's literally a chemical that is released in a person's brain that makes them dumber when they're stressed out. And that explains things like stage fright or when people shut down in stressful situations. Their brain is literally unable to function. So that is a real danger for this situation. And so this guy... This Royal Marine named Lees is causing some serious issues. 
Plus, he thinks he's better than everybody. He snores a lot. He's just awful. He's, and just, he's just the worst. He is. He's just the worst. And he is relentlessly made fun of. And there's a little bit of that that starts to go on. Shackleton has a job of keeping everybody content. He has, he has to make sure these guys are you know, high morale, moving forward, uh, keeping them busy. Everyone always has tasks to do. There's always someone watching the ice. There's always something to be done. There's just a rigidity, a routine. And if humans have a routine, they'll keep moving forward. And remember, they're doing this in an absolutely bizarre, I like the word you use, hallucinogenic world. I just want to describe as the, as the months go on and the sun starts to rise and set at a shallower angle and only be in the sky for a shorter amount of time. And as they start to get a little bit closer to this, you know, the coast sometimes, and there's different areas of open water and ice around them. Are we moving into winter right now? Or? We're starting to move into fall and winter right now. Okay. The landscape becomes almost dreamlike. And Shackleton has like 20 different paragraphs, like the one I'm about to read, to describe the land. But this is the one I thought was the best. Okay, He describes the landscape around them like so. Bergs and pack are thrown up in the sky and distorted in the most fantastic shapes. They climb, trembling, upwards, spreading out into long lines at different levels, then contract and fall down, leaving nothing but an uncertain, wavering smudge which comes and goes. Presently, the smudge swells and grows, taking shape until it presents the perfect inverted reflection of a berg on the horizon, the shadow hovering over the substance. More smudges appear at different points on the horizon. These spread out into, into long lines till they meet, and we are girdled by lines of shining snow cliffs, laved at their bases by waters of illusion in which they appear to be faithfully reflected. So the shadows come and go silently, melting away finally as the sun declines to the west. We seem to be drifting helplessly in a strange world of unreality. It is reassuring to feel the ship beneath one's feet and to look down at the familiar line of kennels and igloos on the solid flow. What he's describing is what's called a Fata Morgana, and that is a kind of mirage. When there are different temperature layers um, along the water and in the atmosphere, and there's what are called temperature inversions where it's... Um, the temperatures are backwards from what you'd expect, basically colder at the surface and warmer in the air above. The images of icebergs and snow and water makes it so that the horizon for pretty high up in a person's view, what's actually there gets projected as an image and it's often flipped upside down and they're stacked on top of each other because of these different layers of temperatures in the air and because the water is warmer than the air above it there's these constant fuzzy smudgy mirages all along the surface it's that, around that them. strange that strange image you get uh on like a really hot desert day where you see like you can see just like a strange hallucination looking thing right above the concrete it's that, that but Way more amplified. And it makes it so that you're seeing things that are sometimes not even in your line of sight being projected higher up in the sky and flipped upside down. And it constantly shimmers as the air temperature changes. And so you're just surrounded by unreality, as he says. Yeah. And as as you were reading that, I was kind of scrolling through photos uh, that Hurley took 
of this uh, expedition. And uh, I just want to encourage our listeners, like, go look up these photos. We'll, I'll, I'll include a link to something with all of them in the uh, show notes. But even just, like, the images of the boat being held at a, like, slightly off-kilter angle in the ice the way that it is, it is menacing looking. It is a terrifying, like, non terrestrial looking place it is crazy the photos that, that, that we have of this and what stands out to me is how clear they are they're in black and white but these are crystal clear they're good, they're good photographs they're yeah. beautiful as they are stuck in the ice as these months begin to pass by the time may arrives which is the equivalent of november in the northern hemisphere the sun sets and then no longer rises until august that has got to be a very somber final day of sun. I mean, it's barely a day of sun, I'm sure. You just have that glow along the horizon. but Kind of a to, purple twilight. To have it go down and kind of know we're not actually going to see it again for several months has got to be a very, a very challenging thing for, for, the, for the morale. What starts to happen is keeping boredom at bay is very difficult. Yeah. So the sailors who did not expect to be stuck in the ice, the ones who struggle with this the most, and they're the ones who have the lowest morale, mm-hmm. uh, they are all in their own sailor area on the boat. Um, and apparently they just basically sleep it away. They just sleep nonstop for months. They hibernate. The rest of the men, the scientists and the officers, are desperately keeping themselves busy. What the the whole crew does is they move away from anything, any part of the boat that is anywhere near outside. And they actually go to the between decks where it's where they store all the supplies. And they basically move all the supplies into their cabins and they set up these new quarters between the decks where it's more insulated. And they, they actually tear apart some of the boat and they walls in into this really narrow we're talking maybe five feet high like between the decks and they make these relatively comfortable but cramped quarters in between the decks and they give them silly names right um guys for example have their little cabin which is it's a closet basically with two guys sleeping and you know there's stuff everywhere it looks like a hong kong apartment you've seen some of the pictures those really crammed apartments um, they can name them things like the Ritz and the Billabong. And these, they name everything. It just keeps yeah. a little bit of morale up. Um, they is, is the purpose of this for warmth, or is the purpose of this to distract from the fact that if you look outside, it's perennially nighttime? Or it's mostly for warmth. Okay. Um, these guys are going outside constantly. They're okay. going outside for exercise. They're going outside just to explore. In fact... Um, Quite a few of these guys describe this time as one of the most beautiful time periods of their life because when the moon is out, when there's a full moon and the sun doesn't rise, the full moon is incredibly bright. And they're able to, like, come as it's as if they have a flashlight. It's so bright. So even though the sun doesn't rise, there is still light outside. And they're always going outside. So they, they can handle it to an extent. But it's mostly for camaraderie, for warmth. It is negative 30 degrees outside, and it never really gets hotter than that. Right? So before, in the summertime, it's hovering around zero, negative 10, 10. A, a balmy zero. But when you're wearing the correct gear, 
that's not that bad. Negative 30, it's, it, it kind of doesn't matter what you do. You're going to be frozen outside. So in these comfortable but cramped quarters, the men are doing their best at keeping themselves busy. Okay, They are... Uh, they have a bunch of encyclopedias, for example, and they have a variety of different debates over topics, and then they'll open up the encyclopedia and figure out who's right. And a few times they realize that the encyclopedia must be wrong because everyone agrees this. that it must be wrong. I love that so much. It's just it's so human, right? That sounds like something we would do. Yes, definitely. They, uh, a couple of guys, play just game after game of chess. I mean, what else are you going to do, right? Game right. after game of chess. Um, they invent plays and they sing songs they play cards um, and when I say they invent plays these guys because they have enough time they write a full play using each other as characters and then basically mock each other in the play and everyone laughs about it and just has a great time except for Lee <laughs> yeah he's actually mocked pretty brutally um, and he does actually laugh about it because even though he is disliked he's not fully aware of it and yeah, you kind of assume that he doesn't have a good read on how everyone feels about him. But he can take a decent bar. But there are multiple occasions when they have to kind of separate him um, from everybody else because he snores too much. <laughs> That's the biggest problem. Right. Hey, we're all going to build bunks in the uh, between decks. Uh, don't tell Lee. <laughs> but just that little thing that a guy snores too much and that becomes a problem. With these close quarters and these long, dark hours, there are problems. There are little issues. And in fact, the sailors who um, make their own little bunk called the, um, the fox coal, which is a shortened word with two apostrophes, which I probably pronounced wrong for the word forecastle, they have a guy who's a huge bully that's causing problems. He's like beating up the other guys and causing major issues with all the sailors. And... What uh, Shackleton has to do is he, he, Shackleton brings him into his office and no one hears what happens because Shackleton's talking very quietly. But when the man leaves, he's like white in the face. This is the biggest, strongest, most, you know, buffalo man that they have. And he leaves Shackleton's office just shaking in fear. So Shackleton, when he has to, he can turn on the discipline. But in general, he is able to solve morale issues by simply being observant about how are the men feeling? He's constantly writing about their cheery state, but noticing that someone is starting to get a little too glum, and so finding a way to make them happier or to shift people around so that personality com uh, conflicts are minimized. That is a true test of leadership in my mind, is not allowing problems to occur in the first place. This yeah. is not an easy problem to handle when men are stuck for months on end in cramped quarters. The other benefit Shackleton has is his second-in-command, Ernest Wilde, who went with him to his, um, his failed trip to South, the South Pole. Remember, Ernest Wilde was given a biscuit by Shackleton and then was forever his follower because at the hardship they were in, a biscuit might as well have been 50 grand. And Ernest Wilde was the perfect second-in-command for Shackleton because when someone had an issue, they were encouraged not to go to Shackleton. They went to Ernest Wilde. And Wilde would simply respond with just the best listening ear possible. The guy that says, yeah, I understand, man, that really sucks. Yeah, okay, definitely, I hear you, I hear you. And usually the guys just needed to vent. And then when there was a real issue, Wilde, who also had that really good sense of personality conflict and could have basically led this mission on his own, 
would then send them to Shackleton who could solve the problem. So there was a great power dynamic at the top. So repeatedly, these men are comfortable. They're having a pretty comfortable time. To give you an idea of some of the, the little things that make their lives better is for dinner, there, there's one little mention that they were eating spaghetti with Heinz um, spaghetti sauce. Like Heinz, Heinz ketchup. Like that, that's a very modern thing that I read. I was like, really? They're eating spaghetti in the middle of Antarctica. I could go for some spaghetti. Yeah. I like spaghetti. Yeah. That is, that is wild. Like that's, you expect in scenarios like this and stories like this, you expect it to be like, what did you have for dinner? Can of beans every day. 19, 19 months worth of can of beans. But the fact that it's like, no, we, it's not like we didn't expect to have, like, to be down here for a long time. We brought everything that you would need to bring. And it's like, you're also, you, you have a boat. Like, you have a place to put this stuff. This is why we built boats in the first place, was to get stuff to places. Yeah. So it does track. And it also is very helpful that you have somebody like Shackleton who probably understands the value of having a spaghetti dinner, like, often enough that people don't feel like can of beans every day. His major morale boost is one of two things. Food in general and hot drinks. Yeah. Think about how much of a boon that is to somebody who is dealing with hardship when they get to sit down and enjoy just the basic aesthetic quality of a hot meal. It smells good. It feels good. It looks good. They get to forget their problems for a little bit. And having those creature comforts on the boat, having each guy with their personalized cabin, where there's, again, great photos of this. And you can see there's like pennants in the background and pictures, and it looks like a dorm room. These are comfortable men. And yet it would be impossible to forget where they are. The last little interesting part of being stranded on the ice as they are drifting ever westward on the ice is until winter really locks in before the sun fully sets is they're surrounded by wildlife one of the first things they noticed was orcas were following the boat as they were zigzagging in and out of the flows before they got locked and the orcas scare them they are all horrified of the orcas because they know that if the orca wanted to it would just burst through the ice and eat them What's really odd about orcas is they've never hurt humans. They just don't. Right. And so right when they first get locked on the ice, then these guys are walking around, and the ice is still fairly thin. So there's openings where the orca are popping through, and they're popping underneath them. They're pushing up at the ice underneath some of these guys, and they're terrified. And after a while, they realize they're, they're safe, but they get, they get creeped out by it. Well, I, either way, even if you know that orcas aren't going to jump through the ice to eat you, I feel like... The surreal feeling of walking on ice that's thin enough that you can see and feel orcas moving underneath you is like, even once you get past the, it's not going to eat me, you still have to deal with the, like, if he breaks the ice underneath me, I die either way. Exactly. Like, it would probably be better if he ate me. It would be quicker. (laughs) And warmer. Yeah. (laughs) The other animals that start to swarm around them are a large variety of um seabirds, you know, albatrosses and gulls and things like that, Um, but then also penguins. I mean, just penguin after penguin after penguin starts to show up. This is where they live, um, and they're very comfortable 
on the ice, and there's all lots of little holes in the ice and things that they can jump through, and there's a ton of seals. And Shackleton uh, has the men hunt them. They're, they have a ton of guns um, for this purpose. They know that there's a good chance to need to supplement their, their diet with penguins, with seals, and though initially they find penguin and seal to not be particularly good, it is filled with fat and protein and oil. And so not only can you take and eat the penguins, but you can also process them and just like the Inuit and Eskimos up north, they can kind of subsist off of this meat if they had to. So they yeah. start to store them away. The biologist with them does this autopsy after autopsy and learns all about the anatomy of these different organisms, what they eat and how they live. They learn a t- a quite a bit about the ecosystem around this area for the first time because they're forced to consistently hunt them. And they have a massive supply of penguin skins and penguin blubber. They just keep in these big tins that they know that if they have to, they can burn that for fuel later to you know fuel their stoves and things. Yeah, just to keep heat in the boat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they have an expectation at this point that they might need to cross the ice on land, like as like sleds and things like that. Yeah. Um, one of the weirdest experiences, though, with these animals is emperor penguins show up. And remember, emperor penguins are very large animals. We don't really realize how big they are. They're like four, five, six feet tall. I mean, maybe not quite that tall, but these, gonna, these are... Like, wait, hold on. I think they're maybe more like four feet tall. I honestly don't know that's how big exactly. Though. That's big, that's, you, you think of penguins as these cute little little two-footers, that kind of thing, like, like knee-high. Mm-hmm. Four foot, four to five foot penguin is a large penguin, and they walk on two feet, and they they are walking animals, and they're also completely oblivious to the danger they're in when they're surrounded by these sailors. So they would oftentimes walk up to the boat and just say hi, and when the sailors were like, "Uh, this is a giant meal," so they would you know basically wrap a rope around the penguin and lead it back to the boat. And apparently they they describe the way these penguins walk when they are harnessed like this, like a drunk old man being brought to the police station. <laughs> They're these like the stumbling um, big bird making weird noises. And they start to gather them up and then they'll shoot them and they'll process them. And sometimes they actually are able to get a full meal of fresh fish out of the stomachs of these things, which is they don't get a lot of fish because yeah, yeah, they're too yeah. far down underneath the ice. Right, but yeah, penguins just, they like, just open up the mouth and just swallow fish whole as they as they swim. Exactly. So yeah. if you can get to it quick enough. At some instances, though, they start to try to bring back these penguins and the penguins start to fight back. And these are, again, 60, 70 pound animals. Oh, I just looked it up. Peng- uh, Emperor penguins can be four foot five. There we go. Okay, that's about a, as big a, as I thought. Yeah, that's, okay. that's big. That is that's, pretty big. That's also, that's also a very long beak. Yeah, and they're sharp, yep. and they're there for the, the, to hunt. And they're also... It's, that beak is there to break ice. They're it'll, it'll 70, break you too. 80, 90-pound animals, the big males are. Yeah. And they do know how to use their bodies to fight. And so when these guys try to tackle these animals, they're about half their size. Mm-hmm. The animals are to compare to them guys. And a few times as they're bringing in these penguins, the dogs go crazy because the dogs want to eat the penguin. And a few times the dogs break free and go after the penguin and this massive brawl between dog, penguin, and the guys trying to jump in. Remember, they're, they're in like snow gear and they're freezing and they're trying to separate them all and people are getting injured in this right. situation. And just ends up with these comical experiences as they're trying to get these penguins back so they can kill them and eat them. And the dogs are just not letting them. Right. Dogs fighting penguins is an interesting thing. 
it's not what you expect with these men being stuck in the ice like this. Right. Yeah. So you guys got you guys got trapped. It must have been horrifying. What what did you do? Played a lot of soccer. Broke up a lot of dog penguin fights. Spaghetti. You know, the usuals. Alexander in her book just writes how she uses lots of excerpts out of their diaries, and it's just filled with little stories like this as the guys just describe what they did to keep the winter madness away. Yeah. But as winter continues, um, you know, May leads to June, and June is the darkest, coldest time of the year. I mean, it's the reverse. Uh, it's the winter solstice. They start to do things like they're out on the ice, and Shackleton and Wild, or Shackleton and Worsley, I, I believe, um, who's the captain again, they, they're dancing a waltz on the ice and everybody's cheering and calling them girls' names and things because they're just so bored. They all shave their heads, including Shackleton. It's just those weird things that it's they... It's a weird choice when it's cold out. Yeah, well, they're all wearing hats, so it's itchy. Fair, I guess. Oh, okay, that tracks. That's kind of what I'm getting, but they find it hilariously funny. Men start to laugh about things that really aren't that comical because they're just going a little crazy. Yep. And then in July... Things, matters, begin to change. They have... July, of course, being winter for them. Hard winter. This is the equivalent of January again. They have drifted. They drift as far south as 77 degrees south, and then they move a little bit northwest, and they're kind of on a western course toward the Antarctic Peninsula where they then are going to continue moving north. Okay. The ice begins to encounter... um, Rather, rather hard storms that are coming out of the south. These are those ultra cold wind storms. They're not. These are not snowstorms as much. They're just. It's a seventy mile per hour wind that's negative seventy, that's hitting the ice. And so, what starts to happen though, is when the wind and the current are opposed to each other, the ice begins to be forced into an ever smaller location. And when that happens, the only place for the ice to go is up. And those, as I've mentioned before, are called pressure ridges. So when two massive chunks of ice get slammed into each other by wind and current, the wind and current wins, and the ice just gets rifted upwards. And these are not like small mounds of ice. These are 20, 30-foot tall chunks of ice that weigh you know, multiple tons being flung into the air and slamming down on the ground like sugar cubes is how it's described. It's an effective visual. The ice flows start to rock and slam up and down with the boat rocking and slamming up and down with them. They notice on July 21st. So this is, that's, if you can have a coldest day of the year, it's about July 21st. There's like a one month lag from the solstice, which was a month before. On that incredibly cold day, when another blizzard hits, um, they see pressure ridges about 300 yards from the boat, and they're getting closer and closer to the boat, and it's like a mountain chain being formed, just this grinding noise, and they hear it like it's artillery and gunshots just exploding around them. At the first day of August, pressure ridges flatten the kennels and reduce them to powder. They had to, right before this, they get the dogs onto the boat as these pressure ridges are buckling near the boat and where literally it's the day after they got them on the boat all of the kennels on one side of the boat are flattened as the ice lifts up and slams down on where they were before jeez yeah you can see uh in the photos you can kind of tell what order the photos are in because you've got these shots of the boat 
just on this like flat plane of ice. And then you have these photos where the where the boat is surrounded by these jagged, smaller chunks of ice that are just stuck up around it that aren't in the other photos. And it's very fascinating to be like, the boat was pretty much stuck in the same place. And yet the the landscape around it changes. Yeah, there's more change to the ice than someone would expect. It doesn't happen very quickly, but it happens with an immense power. Yeah. And that's very scary when you're stuck there waiting for it to just do to you what it's going to do. Yeah. There's nothing you can do. Yeah. If the ice happens to do this in a way that turns the boat over, then the boat's going to get turned over. So, for example, the ice on August 1st, after it smashes the kennel, bunch of different pressure ridges all impact the rudder at a variety of angles and destroy the rudder of the Mm. boat. The boat is permanently disabled from there on out, and they're like hoping that they can repair it. They expect they can if they can get access to it. Right. The ice seems to calm down for about six or seven weeks. The men start to write about it in their diaries. There's a constant sound of this pressure going on around them, but the boat seems to be in a stable position as it continues to drift. Into September, though, which is, again... It should be the beginning of spring, but because it's Antarctica, spring is not really a season. It's just winter part three. Fall is winter part one, winter is winter part two, and spring is winter part three. Winter part two, electric boogaloo. (laughs) They do have electric lighting, so I guess. There you go. As they enter September, the ridges get closer and closer and closer and more and more powerful to the ship. They start to impact the ship more. And everyone's starting to guess, when is winter going to end? When's that first thaw going to happen? Because they don't need a full-on thaw. They just needed enough a hot storm coming in from the north, which always seems so backwards to me, Right. Uh, that breaks the ice apart and so that leads form again. That's all they need is the ice to shift apart, to diverge. Because right now it's constantly converging. Yeah. What happens is the ice gets stuck up against land. And that's what's mainly causing these pressure ridges. It's not just the, the ice slamming and pulling apart. It's when there's an anchor that they're slamming into. Right, because the, the land's not going to move. No. The ice, larger, faster-moving ice wins, but land always wins. And there's ice attached to that land, and then there's a variety of sizes and ages of ice. And as that continues, they're all hoping that it just breaks free enough that they can get out. Now, there's a variety of different guesses. Shackleton being, like the ever optimist says, in October. So within just a couple of weeks, the ice is going to break free. Lees, of course, thinks it's going to be in like 2020. But 1920. But he legitimately thinks February. And this is like so pessimistic. It drives everyone nuts. Right. Pretty much in around October. Shackleton's actually pretty right. The ice breaks underneath the boat, and the boat drops into water. The flows all become more mobile, and they start to break apart and slam back together, and they now are really desperate because they're in the water, and if the flows slam back on them, they might get destroyed by it. Yep. So they're trying they to no get rudder. out. And they, and they have no rudder. So they're trying to get out, and they, they get into the water for a couple points, and they, they get stuck back up in the ice, and they try to get out, and they can't. They spend a few days just trying to shift around and every time they see a lead they try to get into it and it closes or it refreezes or a new storm comes in and prevents it from happening that has got to be just so disheartening it becomes a mental struggle as the ice starts to slam into the ship and the men hear the beams of the ship start to bend long iron bars massive iron bars are 
bent and twisted like just a little twig. It's like gunshots constantly. Screws are being fired out of the side of the ship as that pressure rends the ship back and forth. On October 24th, the ship is completely locked in again. And this time the pressure ridges are underneath it and pressing from the bottom into the ship. The ship begins to leak. A hole is gouged into the side of the bilge pumps on the back of the ship, the stern of the ship. The men become desperate because there's a couple of problems with the ship having a hole in it. One is there's a hole in it, and water enters the ship, and that makes the ship sink. Right. Just, just in t- case no one knew that. Okay, okay. It's why there is no screen door. Exactly. Problem Classic two comedy. is the bilge p- area is where all the coal is. Oh, you probably don't want super wet coal. It'll still burn once you dry it out, but it can also, you know, end up in the ocean through the hole. Where it becomes permanently wet coal. Yes. So the guys, the the sailors, they have to dive into the bilge pumps, which are pitch black, into Antarctic water and start to pump it out. They got to turn the pumps on, which in some cases are manual. We're talking like, you know, those things that are on railroads that you, one person pushes down, the other pushes up, and oh, you just yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of squeak back and forth. That's how they run these pumps. And they're, they're down there pumping the water for hours on end. And they are so numbed and so exhausted that they can't even think straight. And they have to cycle these guys through. The entire crew is cycled through this pumping just to keep the boat from sinking or taking on more water, ruining all the coal. The flows relax and slam back together. Relax and slam back together. And finally, they pull apart and they slam up. The boat rises into the, the air quite high, lurches to the side, and is just shattered on the bottom. The boat is gone. It is not recoverable. Inside, it's a mess. You can see photos of it. Of It's just this destroyed. It's like it was hit by a bomb. Part of that is done by the fact that they cannibalized the ship to form new things. But partly it's just it was d- annihilated by the ice. And it's happening, ironically, because the weather's getting progressively more pleasant. As it gets warmer, as they move further north in their drift, the ice is able to move more. They were actually safer in the winter because it was so stable. It was Everything was frozen in place. Once that freeze thaws then the ice is able to give them the full fury of its power. What for, as they would have said? So things have turned for the worst. The men have lost their ship. It's still on the ice, it's still attached, but they know that even if the ice were to melt, they can't use that ship. So they begin to unload it and camp on the ice. The future had always been tenuous. The future had always been tenuous, but there was a persistent optimism. They had their ship. They knew that they could use it to leave the Antarctic. They had warmth. They had camaraderie. They had recreation. Without their ship, the men camped in paper-thin tents were looking at a much darker future. And the next part of this story is harrowing as the men attempt to free themselves from the ice, survive, 
and make their way back to civilization. And what happens to the men if it were made into a movie would be something too unbelievable, too dangerous, too unrealistic. But it happened, and it is one of the more harrowing tales of endurance in, in humankind's history. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Footnotes. To pick up any of the books used in the research of this episode, you can check out the show notes. Uh, I highly recommend that you go at least look up the pictures from what we've covered so far. It is really astonishing. You can join us on Facebook or on Instagram to kind of get involved in a conversation about this show, talk to either of us, talk to other people who like the show. Please, 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 if you've got the time, uh, leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps the show out. And we will see you next month with part two of Endurance. The Endurancing. <laughs>